Uh, But then those verses 14 and 15, right before that, uh, Paul has that purpose statement of why he's writing the letter. Uh, So that you may know how one ought to behave in the church, which is God's household. And so we're treating this letter, as, I, as I've said each week and as I said earlier today, uh, in line with, God, with Paul's own purpose. This is as close as we get in Scripture as a handbook for how church ought to look and function. Uh, and so it's not just a handbook, it's also for us as a church, it's a mirror. Uh, so we can hold it up to our own church or even our denomination at large uh, and see how things align or how things may need ongoing alignment. And in the immediate context of chapter 3, Paul talks about two offices that exist in the church in Ephesus that he's writing to. There's overseers, he talks about from verse 1 to 7, and then deacons from verses 8 to 13. So the obvious question, I think, would be, why don't we have overseers or deacons? Or at least, since we don't have anyone we call overseer or anyone we call deacon, What are our Presbyterian or our EPC equivalents of these things? So today we're going to look at that. We're going to look at overseers, uh, spend a moment looking at the terms, overseer and deacon, uh, then look uh, at each of them in turn, overseer and then deacon, and then finally we're going to see how these things apply, in fact, not only uh, to those who may be an overseer or a deacon, but they apply, in fact, to all of us. Uh, and they apply most truly of all to Christ himself. Uh, So overseers and deacons first. I want to talk uh, just kind of about the language, the wording here, the terminology. Um, Paul gives us what he calls uh, in verse 1 a trustworthy saying uh, that uh, the office of overseer is a noble task. And then he says, therefore, an overseer must and must not a series of things until the end of verse 7. Now that Greek word that Paul uses, which is translated as overseer, is episkopos. Uh, It's a word that evolved from Greek through Latin and Old English into uh, the title bishop uh, in English today. And most of your older English translations, like a King James Version or something of your Bible, it will use the word bishop instead of the word that's uh, in this or a lot of modern translations, uh, the word overseer. So your instinct might be uh, that since Presbyterians and, in fact, I think the majority of denominations don't have anyone they would call a bishop, then the more biblical expressions of Christianity must lie in the Catholic or the Anglican churches since they're the ones with bishops. But see, the word, the word bishop isn't a translation of the original Greek word. And I, we're going to be a little bit nerdy, but I, I, I think this will hopefully be helpful, not confusing at the end. Uh, The word bishop isn't a translation, it's what's called a transliteration. Uh, It's an attempt to preserve the old Greek word without making any attempt to find a modern English equivalent. So, by way of illustration, does anybody know how to say hot dog in Japanese? Hotudogu, that's right. Um, They say it's something like, and excuse my ochre accent, hotudogu. They don't take the Japanese word for hot and the Japanese word for dog and mash them together to make hot dog. Uh, They didn't come up with their own native term for the American food of hot dog. They just used the American English word hot dog uh, and they say it with their own twist. Uh, A bit like how in English we co-opt other languages uh, for you. So, for example, to, to go in the opposite direction, karaoke. 
Uh, it's a Japanese word that we haven't tried to translate. We just say it and we know what we mean. We use their word in our language. That's a, that, that is a transliteration, not a translation. Sounding out a foreign word with your own native twist or twang. So overseer is a better translation for the Greek word than bishop. Um, bishop's not a translation, it's a transliteration. Um, it's sort of gone from episkopos to episkopos to, uh, what is it, biscop to bishop. Um, it's just kind of evolved. So the word bishop, I would say, actually obscures the meaning because we can, we can picture a bishop in a robe and a hat and potentially make the mistake that this is what Paul had in mind. And I'm not saying that's not what Paul had in mind, but that's not what he had first in mind. The word overseer is more helpfully descriptive. Uh, Paul is talking about a person with genuine oversight and authority in the household of God. Call them what you like, uh, but this is a, this is a better description. It's, it's a bit like, you know, another English word that with overlap might be manager or supervisor or, or something along those lines. And then to dig into the words a little bit more, verses 8 to 13, Paul pivots and he starts talking about deacons. Well, this is almost funny, I think, um, in light of what I've just described about overseers. I, I said that bishop is an evolved English transliteration of the Greek episkopos. Overseer is actually a better translation. But for some reason, when Paul talks about deacons, our modern translations don't attempt to translate. They just they stick with the transliteration. Uh, it's from diakonos, uh, the Greek word. So we've got uh, Greek episkopos and diakonos. Uh, and for some reason in our English Bible, in one they've gone with the translation and with, other, with the other they've gone with the transliteration. It's not consistent, is it? Is it disastrous? Absolutely not. Not at all. Uh, but it's not consistent. It's a bit odd. So you, you can see how our modern translations choose to translate one and transliterate the other. Why? I can only guess. Um, but let me make a couple of quick comments. Terminology is both important and unimportant, or, or probably more truly, it's got limited importance. The importance of terminology is limited. Understanding the terminology is, is useful uh, because of its explanatory power. The word overseer more properly explains the role that Paul is talking about than I think the word bishop does. Uh, it embeds in it the significance of oversight or authority, uh, just like the word servant helpfully reveals the roots and underpinnings of the role of a deacon. So terminology is important, but it's also relatively unimportant because the whole meaning of, of a word isn't embedded in its dictionary definition or its classical roots. How do you know the meaning of most of the words that you say every day? It's not from Googling it or flipping the pages on a dictionary. Uh, it's by uh, hearing it used and then using it yourself. Uh, words actually uh, are attached to their meaning through context, not the other way around. Uh, and in that sense, there's almost no real mystery around what a bishop or an overseer, whatever you want to call them, is, uh, or a deacon or servant, because of the lengths that Paul goes to to describe each of them uh, in quite a bit of detail about their characteristics. Uh, so the word a church or denomination chooses to use is, is way less important than whether or not uh, they prize the character of each. And I'll add this, um, that... Um, 
there's always a risk when you dig a, dig too far into a translation or or a language sort of issue that I'm, I might be doing something to undermine for you the trustworthiness of your English Bible in front of you. And that's the last thing I want to do. Uh, the last thing this should do is make you doubt or question the English words on the page in front of you uh, simply because translating is hard work uh, and this difference up here, it amounts to little more than a quirk. It hasn't really obscured anything much. It's just an interesting thing to note. A judgment call was made when they did it. It might appear inconsistent. It might not be the judgment call that you or I might have made if we were the scholar behind it all. But there's no great mystery that the important thing for overseers and deacons isn't the title you give them, it's the characteristics they demonstrate, which is what we're going to talk about now. Let's talk overseers in particular. Now, this isn't going to be super detailed. There's quite a bit of detail in the text itself. You, you, can, you can kind of do that homework yourself, but I'm, I just want to highlight a few things. Uh, the first thing to say about overseers is that uh, in, in the Presbyterian Church, there is, in fact, a direct equivalent. Uh, we call them elders. Uh, that's because in Acts chapter 20, uh, it tells this story. It says, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And then this is what he says to, remember, an audience purely made up of elders. He says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So you can see when Paul calls the elders together, he calls them overseers. So the words elder and overseer are are more or less interchangeable, either entirely or at least mostly interchangeable. Uh, the Greek word for elder, by the way, is presbyteros, which is what we get pres- Presbyterian from. Um, our church is structured around the understanding that there should be quality men working together to give oversight to the teaching and care of the church body. Uh, in Titus chapter two, uh, chapter one, sorry, Titus is another letter written by Paul uh, to a man leading a local church, and Paul does something similar uh, to what he does in uh, in Acts twenty. He talks to Titus about appointing appointing elders, and then he refers to those elders also as overseers. And so that that's just another example to see that overseer elder terminology, as I say, is not the important thing. Um, there's a few reasons why in the Presbyterian Church we reserve the role of elder or overseer for men. Because uh, this is one thing I do want to talk about here under overseers, that this seems to be a role for men. One reason is this. Uh, one is that uh, when the Bible talks about uh, elders in this passage and Paul's passage in Titus, Paul describes overseers, overseers only in masculine language. Uh, he says, for example, in verse 1 of chapter 3, if anyone aspires, uh, and that anyone in the Greek is a, it's a masculine word. And then uh, you see further down, he says, he must manage his own household, etc., etc. All this masculine language. Although, <clears throat> I'll say this with a caveat, because that's not a slam dunk in my view. Because although I should say... Um, uh, I should say this isn't necessarily conclusive that it's only for men on its own uh, because it is common practice, isn't it, uh, like across cultures and across languages to default to the masculine language when you're f- referring to a general, even a mixed group. Occasionally, uh, even at home, when I'm being playful with my own daughters, I'll call my girls bro uh, for fun. 
Um, sometimes when they answer me a question, I'll answer by saying, yeah, man. I'm not calling them men. I'm not being sexist. I'm not projecting on them that, you know, anything like I wish I had a son or anything like that. It's, it's just a way, it, it's a playful use of, but normal use of language. Um, and so uh, when the Bible writers address their audience uh, generally as, uh, in, in general terms, often they will use just the word brothers, but it's commonly understood that it, it means bro- brother, means brother and sister when they talk to a mixed group. So maybe, even though he uses only masculine words, maybe there's, there's still an open door, potentially. But there's something else. In verse 2, it says the overseer should be the husband of one wife. Well, that seems to be something that only a man could do. Only a man could be a husband of one wife. I should say here, though, too, there is a catch. Uh, because I understand... Uh, that when Paul says that he should be a husband of one wife, he's not actually ruling out single men. Uh, I don't believe he's even ruling out um, previously divorced men. Uh, It seems to be a more general phrase for, you know, uh, an elder ought to be a one-woman kind of man, you know, a faithful person. Someone, uh, it, it, it's a phrase that conveys a more general sense of sexual purity and marital faithfulness, which are things that can be true of a single or married person. So, and that, by the way, is a vibe that even a woman can fulfil, can't it? To be sexually pure and maritally faithful. So, okay, it, it seems masculine, but not necessarily. There's one last thing. I think the most compelling reason for eldership being a role for men goes back to the discussion that we had last week stemming out of chapter 2. Paul says in verse 12, uh, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And he says that this is because Adam was formed first and then Eve. And built into the role of overseer, in fact even built into that terminology of overseer, is this sense of authority. And built into the role as he describes it in, uh, I think it's verse 2, is the requirement to teach. And these are like, this is like the very next sentence after he's said that other stuff. And so, so I can't, I I can't go into the whole discussion we had last week about chapter 2. You can find our sermons normally on on our church website if you're interested. Uh, But I think it's pretty clear from here that, uh, at least in, in Paul's view, Eldership is a role for men, and that's the way uh, the Presbyterian Church today practices it. Let's pull out just a few other quick details from this thing about overseer. Notice the importance of image. It's funny, isn't it? It's both the first and the last thing mentioned when he talks about overseers. In in verse 2, he says he should, should be above reproach, as in like the kind of person that no one could bring a charge against. Um. And, uh, and in verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders. And then also in there, he talks about being respected. Well, that, you know, to walk that line takes great spiritual maturity from a Christian person living in a non-Christian world. It's not an easy tightrope to walk. The Christian life is one in which we are commanded to be prepared to live in very stark contrast to the world around us we ought to be people who say no to ungodliness and worldly passions even as our friends uh, and neighbors are saying yes to all those things and looking down oddly at anyone who would do otherwise Uh, we're to be counter-cultural to the point of being a stench to others and inviting their scorn 
And yet, even as we forsake the approval of man, we should try to be all things to all people, so that by all means possible, we might win some and draw them to Christ. Can you see the balance that it requires? We're told to expect persecution, meaning that the better we try to be for Christ's sake, the more we ought to expect that people are going to turn against us, either in jealousy or bigotry or ignorance or because of their own deep-seated hatred for Christ himself. They will turn on the Christ that is in you. And yet we're also called to be good and pure and to live with integrity and generosity, all qualities that will actually naturally draw even the most hard-hearted person to ourselves. It's a confusing life. And look, the greatest who ever lived it invited both extremes. Jesus was worshipped and revered as God himself and crucified. So neither being loved nor hated is the ultimate proof of your success in the Christian life. Uh, That's really important, by the way. Don't misinterpret the approval of your friends as proof that you're doing something right. It could be the opposite. They may just like that you're just like them and you may be following the world. So your approval of your friends may show that you're living a life of respect or it may show that you're living a life that is just like your friends and not at all like Christ. On the flip side, don't misinterpret the hatred of your neighbours as proof that you must be doing something right. I've heard that before as well. It might just be that you're not very nice and you're not living Christ's way at all. The important thing is the path a person walks. You can only do so much about the views of others. The important thing is the path that a person walks. So to come back to Paul's references in verses 2 and 7 about reproach and respect and reputation, the important thing when we're appointing elders or overseers isn't exactly whether the person is loved or not. Because being hated isn't necessarily a deal breaker. Jesus was hated more than anyone. The question we need to ask is, based on our knowledge of the person, are the accusations that might come against them founded or unfounded? Are they they mirroring Christ in their life? Now, there's lots more in here uh, that speaks for itself. Verse 3 says he shouldn't be a drunkard. Paul says in the same letter that Timothy should take some wine to settle his sore tummy. So alcohol doesn't receive a blanket ban... But an overseer in the church should not be enslaved by alcohol. Uh, He shouldn't rely on it for his nerves or his mood. Here's something I've seen. I've I've seen um, uh, ministers and theological students, when I was one of them, get giggly around alcohol, as if, you know, having a beer is a guilty pleasure, that, you know, we can all be a little bit proud of our freedom, you know, while we partake. I reckon getting giggly around the thought of having a cheeky beer is proof that your conscience is condemning you uh, and that you probably shouldn't be drinking it. By the way, with alcohol being so jolly expensive at the moment, I'd even suggest it crosses over into other things like general stewardship of your resources. Don't spend money on booze when you've got bills to pay or a family to feed. Think about where that money could be going to do good. Let's put less money into breweries and distilleries. Verse 3 says uh, an overseer should be gentle and not quarrelsome. 
the disgrace of the church that Timothy is in, uh, this is in context, uh, is the infighting and the jealousy that's being cultivated by some of those people who are, you know, shouldering other people out of the way to get into um, leadership positions. So overseers in the church should, she- should seek to bring peace and certainly shouldn't contribute to disunity or general agitation by being full of bluster. Verses 4 and 5, this is really key, and I've mentioned this other weeks as well. Uh, It says, He must manage his own household well, for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own house, how will he care for God's church? Uh, This as well, along with uh, verses 14 and 15 in the same chapter, is, is where we see that household or family is 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 one of the primary driving metaphors for how we understand church that's the weakness of the word overseer actually in in this sentence or one of the weaknesses is that it seems to draw more on uh, imagery from the corporate or the political world or something like that uh, like a manager or a supervisor Uh, whereas elder I think has this more organic kind of thing but you know Paul had his reasons for using it that this was a church that required firm authority, um, even if the, word, the terms are, are interchangeable. So even as Paul uses the word for overseer, he's very careful to remind us that God's church is God's family. Uh, the proper training ground for overseeing seeing the church is in the home. A man might have great skills and qualifications, he might have an excellent resume, he might have a glowing uh, corporate uh, reputation, he may be one of those people who's high capacity, brimming with competence, but does he prioritise his care and consideration appropriately to love his wife and shepherd his children? And if not, uh, he's not prime candidate for, uh, for eldership or overseeing. Deacons. I spent a bit of time arguing that Paul says overseers or elders should be men, whereas he leaves the door open uh, to suggest that deacons could be women. Still the question, what is a deacon? Um, We'll have a little think about that. But two things are the same in the way uh, that he talks about overseers and deacons. For both, like I talked about with elders, for both he uses almost exclusively masculine language. But like I said, that's not a slam dunk. Um, for both, he uses the phrase that they should be a husband of one wife. But like I said, you know, if we're taking that more, to mean more generally, uh, which I don't think is being too funky or out of place, uh, to mean more generally that you ought to be a faithful, sexually pure person, then, then that's not necessarily... that you know, Men have no monopoly on that. But while... Um, But here's the thing, though. While overseer, the first one, suggests authority, a thing that Paul said a woman shouldn't have over a man in the church, the word deacon is servant. There's nothing authoritarian uh, built into that word, is there? This This is a role of submission. And I should be clear, because submission, when you pair it uh, with women, can sound like a dirty word. Um, But he's not setting up a dichotomy where only men rule and only women submit. Not at all. In Scripture, we are all called to submit and to serve. Those are two of Jesus' most profound, Jesus' most profound and powerful qualities. One who submitted even to death, even to Roman authorities. The one who served by washing feet, etc. The expectation here is obviously that men should step up to serve, but women should too, as if you could stop them. 
But verse 11 is, is, is the one that particularly seems to open up um, the role of deacon to, to potentially incorporate women. And we're going to do some language stuff again, but, uh, but, but it's interesting, I think. It says, it says in our ESV, the, the translation that we mostly use here at church, it says, their wives, which it sounds like it's saying the wives of the deacons uh, must also be dignified, etc., now, that is, it's actually really not a very good translation at all. The word for wives is interchangeable with the word for women. So it could be not their wives, but their women. All right, that still sounds like ownership. That's awkward. But the word there isn't there at all. It's the. So, it, it's, um, so the person who's translated this has, has interpreted the word there. Because they've said, oh, you know, is it wives? Is it women? Well, if it's wives, then it's obviously the wives of the deacons. So they've just said it's, it's their wives. But grammatically speaking, it could just as easily be the women, likewise, are to model these things. And so some modern translations do this. They, they, uh, instead of saying the women, they say the women who serve, because that seems contextually accurate as well, uh, that, uh, that uh, there, there may be women deacons who also serve. But the slam dunk is in another passage, in Romans chapter 16. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deacon, Literally the same word of the church at, well, I don't know how to say that word. But the servant word is the deacon word. It, it's the same thing. The question then is, where are all the deacons? Where are the deacons here in EPC? Well, there's a couple of ways to answer that question. One is to say, uh, we, do, we, we have no one called a deacon in our church. In fact, the person who comes closest to that title, weirdly, is me. Uh, the word to serve is the same uh, as the word to minister. Um, it's the title preferred in the Presbyterian Church for the person in my role. So that's not a great answer. It's, it's an answer, but you know, um, uh, it's, not, it's far from perfect. The other is to let you know um, that uh, there is a push right now in our denomination to think through how to incorporate deacons because there's a, there's a dearth of deacons. Um, there's a couple but no one really knows how, how it's defined. So there is actually currently a push in our denomination to think through, um, is, is there a way to incorporate a di- diaconate? Uh, and that is coming uh, particularly with a view um, from some corners of people wanting to promote deacons as an avenue for the pastoral work of women to be recognised. Now, I don't know how this is all going to pan out, but watch this space. In the Prezi Church, it's bound to move slowly, but I'll try to keep you updated. I do want to suggest, though, that anyone who serves in any capacity is adopting something like a role of a deacon, uh, in any capacity. And just like, uh, just like there's a vetting process for the character of deacons in this letter, there is a kind of uh, a vetting process that we employ at church in some ways, depending on how a person is, is serving. So you may not be aware of this, but probably you've probably you've applied this to yourself in some ways and this isn't sort of codified or anything by the way but 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 it is a something that something that sort of plays out so we insist um for example that those who teach and have authority are subject to the most strict expectations uh, we insist that people who lead growth groups or youth or kids have a true and fruitful faith we we examine these things in fact there is a a formula and an application process for being involved in those things. 
If you're doing another role in our church, uh, like welcoming at the door or serving morning tea or setting up chairs or doing music, in my view, they require a different expectation on a person's character since they're visible roles, but they're not exactly authoritative positions. Um, and so there are some roles in the church where uh, we are quite happy for someone who's, visiting, uh, who's quite new to church, even exploring Christianity, who wouldn't even call themselves a Christian. I'm quite happy for you to serve in, in a handful of ways, but isn't it also reasonably reasonable that we wouldn't have you preach um, or, you know, or teach from the front? Um, and there, there's sort of a, a process that we, we go through there. And that is not, by the way, to diminish the general importance of any of those roles, because each of these roles need to be done. And no one should be welcome to lead from the front unless that person is equally happy to serve from the back. Um, Quiet, background, busyness with contentment is a true sign of Christ-likeness. Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. These things, this is greatness, in fact, uh, in, in this body. Finally, all of us and Christ alone. I'm going to put these two together in conclusion. First thing, these instructions uh, for assessing a person's suitability for leadership and formal service, they, they actually don't bypass any of us. Uh, whether or not a person ever takes a formal role in the church, uh, your life should absolutely be heading in this trajectory that's spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There is nothing extra Christian in any of this stuff. It's just Christian. It's mature and maturing Christianity. Uh, Also remember that the main metaphor for church here is that church is a family where every person has their role. But because of time and growth, and families and family roles have inertia. People are moving forward in a family. People don't stay the same or, or adopt the same role. Where did fathers and mothers come from? Well, they were sons and daughters, and they become fathers and mothers. Where do overseers and deacons come from? Well, they were once baby Christians who steadily grew in service uh, and character. So this passage is not an umbrella. Maybe I should have said this at the start, in case you thought, oh, overseers, deacons, I'm not doing that, I can just, you know, let it go. It's not an umbrella. You don't have the luxury of raising it so that all the rain drips on the people around you. You might not have a selection committee inquiring into your life to examine your fitness for a role, but God's Word does that. God's Word is asking questions of your life. It asks both difficult and inspiring questions uh, as God pulls you through His Word towards the great ideal who is Christ. And that's our last point too, because Christ really is the point. Those last few verses of the chapter uh, where... Uh, where then in verse 16, Paul goes into that, you know, he was manifested in the flesh, uh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, etc. It's hard to see exactly how it fits in at the end of chapter 3. I actually think maybe it fits in more at the start of chapter 4, but we're just going to overlap. Part of how I I can see it fitting in with chapter 3 is we've got overseers, we've got deacons, but who do we have first of all? It is Christ. Where does it end? the one who is glorified. And have a look at this. Christ alone is the true overseer and deacon. The same words are used of him. 
You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is Christ. Jesus said this. He said, the son of man, speaking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve. This is, that's the deacon word. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So once again, Christ asks nothing of his children or his church leaders that he hasn't already modelled in his life and provided for in his flesh. Our trust is in no man or woman in the church. We should be assessing people. We should be appointing really high quality people into offices in the church. But we should also always be prepared to be disappointed by those people because they're only people and they're sinners like the rest of us. We should be praying for these people, for their faith and growth. We must remember always that it is Christ alone and his glory that we trust and that we seek. Let's pray. Father God, you have been so good to us in your word uh, to give us instructions that are clear. Father, we pause even for a moment to thank you for uh, those who have faithfully uh, and with wisdom uh, done the work of translating the Bible into our language. Um, we pray that uh, you will help us as we, as we uncover some of the quirks and understand them, that you'll help us also to see that, uh, by and large, these words are reliable. There's nothing deal-breaking that's, that's called into question here. Uh, but we do thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to seek to understand things more fully. Uh, we thank you for, uh, for these instructions about, um, uh, about what, what we should look for. We thank you for the permission um, that you give us to dig into the lives of people who, um, who would put themselves first in your kingdom. Uh, we thank you for, uh, again, the reminder and the command that uh, we all must serve and that in doing so, uh, we are only doing what Jesus himself, uh, your own son, has done for us. Father, we recognise as well that each of us, uh, whether we're in positions or not, uh, fall short. We are all sinners. We all need to return to the true overseer of our souls. Uh, we thank you uh, for Christ and his work, uh, and we praise him in all the glory that he's due. Amen.